Hi, welcome to Deep Americana. I am your host for season four. My name is Wes Unruh. And season four is Unrelated Thoughts on Being an Unruly Adoptee. This is uh, an episode, I guess, sort of calling conspiracy theories and occult texts, maybe occult objects. My adoptive parents sent me to Summit Ministries in Colorado in the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. I, I felt like they were sending me into an indoctrination camp, and I found the lectures boring, dry, and repetitive. They were um, essentially homophobic, anti-communist screeds about the dangers of public universities. Uh, I think the dangers of gay marriage. This was in the buildup to the Iraq War, Persian Gulf, just after the LA riots. There was an undercurrent of racism in it. There was certainly planned protest of an abortion clinic as part of the uh, the week's events. Um, I'll get to that in my response to it. I doubt they thought of that camp as an indoctrination camp um, in their minds. It was probably an attempt to reconnect me with uh, my childhood friend who I hadn't seen in a long time after he'd moved to Kansas. I realized on that trip how different he and I actually were when we compared music tastes that evolved in our gaps between seeing each other. <clears throat> and the gaps in my own life only sort of loomed ever larger after that trip. When we were kids, we had always lived on the other side of the canyon in Idaho, uh, Magic Valley being split by the Snake River Canyon. He lived in Jerome and I lived in Twin Falls. Um, while I was at Summit Ministries, thinking about that canyon in those mountains, I spent the entire time talking to other kids I met. And really, the conversations were about the secret satanic influences in music, the Illuminati, what UFOs actually were, and communists. And communists were a shorthand for a whole subset of people. Um, <clears throat> In that space, specifically professors who weren't Christian, non-Christians from Europe, non-Christians from South America, people who joined or organized unions, abortion providers, pornographers, and most journalists. So communists and atheists are destroying America, and only a religious revival can save the country. This is the underlying theme of the camp. So I came into this with my obsession with understanding occult practices. Like I wanted to understand things that people did in secret with each other. I want to understand secret societies. Um, and I was already interested in the occult influences in music because that was how I found a lot of music that I was listening to. Um, so it meant that I wandered into this environment in the mountains in Manitou Springs, Colorado, where I listened a lot more than I talked. And my opinion of the people who lectured was rather low. Um, I learned of more musical groups to explore thanks to the documentary that was screened on occult influences and heavy metal. Uh, that was always fun. I remember getting deeply into faith no more after that trip. The camp at Summit Ministries occurred the summer between my junior and senior year, which was after I had returned from a seven-week stay at a Christian mental hospital in Texas. Um, I was put in there. <laughs> because I shaved the sides of my head and said I did not want to go to church that weekend. Um, and apparently a friend of mine had given a bunch of poetry that I had written to my mom who didn't fully understand any of the references because they were based on the music I was listening to at that time. Anyway, so at that point, I had yet to reach a resolution on a source of trauma. I don't know, I wasn't even being treated for trauma, for PTSD, or I was being medicated, which was, I was over-prescribed medication in my mind. And while there, I was given heavy doses of iron supplements. Um, and then, so on the back end of coming out of that Christian mental hospital, I was placed in this two-week intensive uh, camp that was 
encouraging me to think of higher education as a source of evil in the world. Um, my adoptive parents had spent what money they had set aside to provide me with a college education on that Christian mental hospital, and then would later refuse to co-sign for my applications for student loans, citing Bible passages. Um, I ultimately had to wait until I was 26 to apply for a federal loan so I could attend college because they did not think God wanted them to help me attend school. One of the events at Summit Ministries was to protest collectively at an abortion clinic in nearby Colorado Springs. So from the moment that I learned about this event on the schedule, I was determined to find a way out of going. I, uh, <laughs> having gotten back out of that mental hospital, I was finally able to smoke cigarettes again. So I was always exploring ways to sneak away from the sprawling building and campus into the footpaths that kind of run up and down the hillside at the mountain's foot in Manitou Springs. So I disappeared into the town uh, when everyone else was piling onto the buses to go to the abortion protest. And while I was in the town, I found an occult bookstore. I had my tarot read, and <laughs> I remember distinctly uh, a prominently placed nine of swords underscoring the sort of recent seven weeks I'd just spent within an institutional setting for mental illness. Uh, it was there that I bought The Book of Lies by Oster Crowley, and I remember reading it while smoking in the city park, surrounded by the stark terrain and forested hillsides. This moment was um, an act of rage, but also of reclamation, of pursuing my own path, resisting the imposition of others' beliefs. I saw this whole <laughs> motive to just bind everybody up that was coming to this camp into a political action as a kind of group control. Like, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't even know I was going to this camp, nor did I know that these events would be part of it. But the the fact that I went to a mental hospital where my adoption was never discussed, ever, as a source of trauma, and then was uh, trying to be roped into a space where people were actively using the rhetoric of, you know, adopt rather than abort, I wasn't ready to engage in that in any way. So this this was all rage, refusal to pray, the determined and inscrutable pursuit of alternative spirituality. You know, <laughs> it, it's always amusing to me that it is the Book of Lies that was the first book I purchased at an occult bookstore because it is reflective on the fact that I am always meditating on the value of lies and truth, which ultimately in my practice makes the unthinkable understandable if you're always caught in that framework. <clears throat> when, uh, to my mind, I find myself thinking more about what works rather than what's true or false. Um, my identity is neither true nor false. It's what works and allows me to move through the red tape of uh, civic society. So, my identity is a marker that moves me through bureaucracy. Um, these bureaucracies are all different and run by different kinds of ideologies. So at my age in Manitou Springs, uh, 17, I had a screaming resolve to not be manipulated by the adoption superstructure as I saw it. It started with my adoptive parents, the social apparatus that had erased my identity and masked me with a new name, the religious rhetorics that demanded obedience of me from the moment I could understand the songs I was made to sing, the presumptuousness of toddler conversion at child baptism, which I steadfastly refused. Surviving to now, right? Uh, finding ways to remain calm amidst the noise in my head that screams flee or run for the hills, the voice that always used to win. So I would disappear at 17. I went to ground, removed myself from the situation. I was a ghost amongst the living. Um, but the physical traumas late, that were later in life were compounded by earlier traumas. So the head injury, uh, my gasoline baptism, the ill-advised ride-alongs with acrobatically inclined pilot customers of my dad's when I was a kid, 
I remember going uh, in barrel rolls in planes as a young child, um, somehow. And at the time, I nearly froze to death when I was five years old. I mentioned all of this in the previous episodes. So the abuse I suffered as a child was a mixture of neglect, carelessness, and sort of religiously driven discipline. Um, it is as the moments of carelessness and neglect were burned more deeply into my memories than the times that I'm sure were bright, and they outweigh it in my mind. My awareness of myself as an adoptee began earlier than my awareness of myself as a bastard, though. So I do think they're different. Adoptee consciousness and bastard consciousness is different kinds of consciousnesses. Um, Bastard consciousness was the realization that I was an unwanted element within a body of people. That my existence, stripped of the deceit of adoption, was something alien or disruptive to the community. Again, I realized this reading Deuteronomy 23.2 during chapel on a Wednesday morning in sixth grade, late in the fall semester of the 1985-86 school year. So my keys to this memory are contingent on other memory markers. I know where in the room I sat, as each grade had assigned rows to sit in during chapel. I know why I was reading. I had heard the term mamzer used during a discussion of the unpardonable sin as an individual couldn't be saved. So I'd always been fascinated by the notion of the unpardonable sin, which was a key component of a lot of dogmatic discussion from the time I entered pre-K to the time that I was in just Christian daycare. The time that I was in kindergarten, the unpardonable sin was a discussion. I wanted to know what it was, and it was something that nobody would ever fully define. So the moment that I heard the word mamzer and unpardonable sin in one paragraph, I dug down that rabbit hole because that's something I'd been very curious about for a long time throughout my childhood. It was the only conversational pool that my social life drew upon was this unpacking of trivia from the Bible. That raised debate that was a powerful approach to gaining respect and attention from the adults in my life. So, by arguing that I was a mamzer, as defined by Deuteronomy 23.2, I made the adults I argued with visibly uncomfortable. I had discovered the point of tension regarding my identity. I feel as... Though I had always known I was adopted, I don't remember being told. I remember different moments of coming into awareness of being adopted, but the sense of merely displacing, the sense of being displaced, if you will, of being from somewhere else has always been with me. To their credit, my adoptive parents were always honest about my adoption, although they didn't tell me everything they knew about it until I was in my early 20s and I grilled them on the details. I think that helped unlock bits of their memory. My early memories are connected to discussions about being adopted. So I remember that the year leading up to my sister's adoption was filled with direct discussion and overheard conversations about the process. As they had social workers visit the house at that time and talk to me and them in the process of starting the adoption, which was different from how they adopted me. I recall being interviewed alone by a woman or perhaps a man who came with a grad student who did the interview, although I don't recall what was asked of me. I learned much later that none of this process of interview and oversight had been followed prior to my private adoption, so my sister's adoption was through the state of Idaho, or what's called a public adoption, as I understood it as a child. My private adoption was, in contrast, a sloppier and apparently cheaper process. Throughout my search, I would give up for months, convinced that there was nothing more for me to discover. To be honest, my life is not likely to have been substantially changed if I were to know all of the circumstances that surround my birth. But what I've learned directly from my biological mother and biological father did anchor me into my own narrative. I found the threads of my own story. So before I came into contact with them, I was always pondering a series of unconnected yet sort of interrelated facts and struggling to see if there might be meaning within those bits of data. However, I could parse that out. And in wrestling with these fragments of narrative, I find a unique, almost absurdist void of meaning that challenges my very notion of selfhood again and again throughout the search 
I would encounter a personal fear that I'm broken and without value, uh, cast aside and salvaged, but never to be made whole. So this fear comes with its own myth, its own aesthetic principles even, the cycle of the cuckoo's chick. So as I learned when I was nine years old, the cuckoo doesn't make a nest. It tricks other birds into adopting its offspring. Once the chick is strong enough, it kills the rest of the nest and eventually overpowers and leaves the adoptive parents. So to be broken beyond sociality, uh, to be set adrift in society with nothing but a murderous nature is to be the cuckoo. When I grew up, the phrase one flew over the cuckoo's nest was part of the lingua franca, the cultural pocket I moved through. I heard it a lot. Uh, certainly it was a popular movie before I was born and book. And as I understood the story of the cuckoo as an adoptee narrative, the bad adoptee, a theme, trope, or meme that occurs throughout media, I would internalize all of those references as being somehow driven by my presence. What I mean is, my adoptiness, the way I move around others, is sensed, is picked up upon by those around me, and as a child I was never called a bastard to my face, but I often heard references to cuckoo birds, nests, eggs, and not in direct reference to me or my adoption, but in general. My earlier notion of adoption as something sheep would do at the arrangement of the shepherd had become complicated by a notion that in many ways ultimately consumed me in the world as I had come to understand it. Who I was was itself an aberration. This is bastard consciousness as opposed to adoption. From the moment I was adopted, the conversations about Moses were always present in the discussions in a conscious way. I was shown the film Ten, Ten Commandments, as I discussed at a young age, as a way to explain my own adoption, and his story was a mainstay in my childhood and was told countless times. Moses' betrayal was of his adoptive parents, the royal family of Egypt, who had raised him from infancy. So as Moses became aware of his place within Egyptian society, he began to question the purpose of his presence within the royal court. Moses is the divinely empowered, world-breaking adoptee who undid the social order upon achieving fullness of his self-knowledge. Oddly, this is not unlike the movie Scanners, 1981, where the guy who finally discovers who his father is after seeing his father die in front of him gains the world-breaking ability of mind control and taking over other bodies. I never felt like I was Moses. I didn't feel like I was God's favorite. If anything, I felt like I was the one who slipped away, who fell off the game board. <clears throat> then, as I grew older, I became aware of and read carefully the play Oedipus Rex, where Moses, as an adoptee, was a rebel doomed to bring his people to the edge of paradise, but never enter himself. Oedipus was an adoptee who sought to do the right thing at every turn, but was always a man out of place, cursed to break all cultural and social rules despite the best of intentions. Oedipus's tragedy was he remained blind to his own true nature, ultimately blinded physically by the end of the play. And this is late discovery adoptee, uh, hardcore, if you will. I saw in Oedipus an adoptee more like me than the heroic leader of Moses. Oedipus thought himself unwanted, cursed, mistreated, and increasingly bitter with fate itself. This is the myth that called to me to be understood. Like Oedipus, I am meant to be broken and am made articulate and unique by the tessellated scars that grow as each new wound eventually heals. The pain is Noting a true lack that will always exist, the pain of nothing, where something once was, a ghost pain. So a slicing off of identity, the pre-verbal linguistic act performed through civic ritual that dismembered, by way of the state of Idaho, my genealogy, my history, my connection to ancestry. I may not have been left on a mountainside and discovered by a shepherd, but having been raised with the metaphor of a shepherd presenting a lamb to a new you for adoption, the story of Oedipus caught me and held me when I read it for the first time. Not to mention I'd been on so many hillsides for grazing sheep in my life, wandering around the hills and mountains of Idaho. It was easy to picture a baby discovered amongst the low sage that fills these sort of mountain valleys. Like Oedipus, all sense of self-history 
for me, has been displaced, flattened, and replaced with a false allegiance upon which non-fertile ground, no other seeds of civic-mindedness can take root, let alone sprout. Harmless untruths, white lies, designed to facilitate social niceties and spread a veneer of propriety across any insidious behaviors within a family's secrecies and house, walls erode histories as they accrue, like dust across long, untouched cookbooks in the kitchen's corners. So there's no room in my thoughts for what Kurt Vonnegut labels grand faloons or FOMA, untruths designed to lubricate social exchanges. Writing this down means my mind is questing through memory, seeking truth as a form of unpuzzling and validating supposition from memories not fully captured. My details are always a little off. My notes are poorly organized. I distrust technology to be private. There is this comprehensive proprietary approaches in technologies. So I wrote most of this in plain text. Uh, I translate it into PDF and Word docs so that other people can interact with the way they want. And then I put it back into plain text or handwriting when I want to go into deeper edits because I am paranoid to a fault. And I'm pretentious enough to not be paranoid enough when it most likely matters. I think that's true of most people in our, our day and age. But, and this could eventually be my tragic flaw, that I entrust someone and die because of that trust betrayed. My fears of abandonment and betrayal are like skin or air. I move through the day anticipating both the notification of some pivot point in my life landing in my lap on the phone, a word or text derailing the world I have constructed to procrastinate, to put off, to come to terms with the conditions of my adoption. So the only salvaging came as a result of finally finding and understanding my biological mother and father. I deeply ache for all those adoptees who have yet to achieve even one of these results. Without understanding oneself and finding one's way in the world is painful enough, despite every triumph, and shallow even when the shame and the pain grow heavy on one's heart. So I survived, but like only with scars. So in 1998, <clears throat> I watched the movie The Truman Show in the theater. If you've seen it, then you'll know. The Truman Show stars Jim Carrey as Truman Burbank, Ed Harris as Kristoff, who's creator of Truman's World, and Laura Linney, who's amazing, as Meryl, Truman's wife and actor, devoted to the role she plays, but she's not emotionally present in Truman's life. So Noah Emmerich portrays Truman's lifelong friend, Marlon, and Natasha McKellen, oh, I butchered her name, but she portrays Sylvia, uh, who first encountered Truman while acting under the name Laura. So that's a bunch of confusing identities right off the top, but let's get into why this is important. I think this is... This is a, a genius screenplay to begin with, and the original screenplay, as it was originally written by Andrew Nicole, would have been a much better film in some ways, but maybe less accessible. The film itself is a screenplay credited to Andrew Nicole, who also wrote Gattaca, the 1997 sci-fi film. Itself is a profound treatise, treatise on genetics and classism. Um, the Truman Show was directed by Peter Weir, who's a master of visionary scales um, and intricate family dramas, and he's no stranger to science fiction. Um, as regards the critique of reality television, which the film purports to be, the central theme of the movie's trailer and marketing, essentially, I think of The Truman Show as a mirror that reflecting the sort of cyberpunk dystopia we all found ourselves in at the end of the 90s media sphere if you were of my age or slightly younger or older even. I watched this film first as a maddening neo-noir where the central character discovers a deep and justified well of paranoia within himself, which he then acts upon. So it's similar in tone to the 13th floor of the 1999 movie, Existence, Cronenberg's 1999 movie, Dark City, the 1998 movie, and The Matrix, the 1999 film. As with those other films, this is a sort of Gnostic retelling of the hero experiencing anamnesis, coming into self-knowledge, Oedipus Rex all over again, 
exchanging a persona for personhood. But while all five of these films tackled the constructed nature of reality, only The Truman Show, the 1998 film, added a layer of detail and sort of verisimilitude to extend that criticism directly into the industry of adoption. So I've watched this film numerous times. And the moment that stands out clearest is Truman's private collage as he struggles to make the memory he's trying to reclaim. As I talk about this film, I'm going to find myself struggling with emotion, emotional response to fully articulate what I need to say, but bear with me, I'll get through it, and I think you'll understand. At first watch, when you see the collage, this appears to be like a lost love. As it is revealed to be the face of the woman who basically dared to try and share the truth of his existence, the frame shifts into a thriller, and we see a struggle to remake her face as a desperate attempt to rectify his inner world with the truth of the world in which he remains trapped. So he's he's coming to consciousness, literally coming through the fogs of adoption to steer his own ship, captaining his own fate outside the sandbox walls of his childhood. And so the power of this film, whew, wow, still hits me. I haven't watched it in a year. The power of this film is in its awareness of its audience. That's the reality television critique. The film acknowledges our voyeuristic need, but plants that voyeurism on screen as we watch audiences consume Truman's pain and frustration as a serialized television program. So our position as an audience of the film is firewalled from this critique, for we're not watching The Truman Show, but are watching a film critiquing the grotesque nature of The Truman Show. And that grotesquerie is manifest as a symptom of adoption as industry, rather than as a causal nature of adoption itself, the film still pulls back from assailing adoption itself. Yet it does illustrate the deep, driving nature of the adoptee's inner world. The turmoil that's present in late discovery adoptees, as they question the very stars, demanding to know what is constructed and what is phenomenologically real, for me to think about this movie <laughs> through the lens of the movie Scanners, 1981, may seem a little strange, but they're both affected by the cuckoo's myth. I saw the Truman Show the weekend it was released. I was completely unaware that I'd be like weeping in the theater by the end of the film, initially unsure like why I was so profoundly affected. I had to really reflect on the film. Within the world of the story, though, we eventually learned that Truman Burbank our protagonist, was chosen to star purely as a matter of happenstance, as one of six, quote, unwanted pregnancies, with his birth being described as part of living history. Um, the actual exchange, which happens late in the film between the, an interviewer and Christoph, who's the director of Truman's World, goes like this. Christoph says, He was curious from birth, premature by two weeks, as if he couldn't wait to get started. An interview then, interviewer says, of course, his eagerness to leave his mother's womb also meant he was the one selected. I believe the interviewer is Harry Reasoner. That might not be right. Ah, anyway, Kristoff says, in competition with five other unwanted pregnancies, the casting of a show determined by air date, he was the one who arrived on cue. Interviewer says, who knew that a show originally meant to last one year, called Bringing Up Baby, would turn into a cradle-to-grave concept. He was, in fact, the first child in the world to be legally adopted by a corporation. I always like the term first child. Kristoff then says that's correct. So perhaps it was this exchange that cast adoption as industry in a way I could firmly grasp that led to my growing consciousness about my position within that industry mentioned previously, coming to consciousness in previous episodes is another way to say defogging or coming out of the fogs, uh, fear, obligation, guilt, and shame, right? The notion of the adoptee's mental fogginess about their adoption is spread pretty widely amongst the online discourse I've been reading. Um, and the mist and fog of the shoreline is used visually as a contextual cue for the viewer of the film 
diegetically for the audience of the film Truman Show itself, the television program broadcasting a live image of Truman Burbank to the globe within the world of the film. Uh, even in the very end of the film, Kristoff is still manipulating the weather, manipulating the fogs in the film as a way to control the production of Truman's actions. That, but that control finally falters as Truman chooses to seek out the true world. The film ends with him leaving, seeking outside the walls of the soundstage of what has essentially been his entire past. Truman Burbank is a late discovery adoptee, someone who feels their world fall away, who glimpses the world as a set. A very personal conspiracy theory. They're seeing into a backstage and they're overhearing conversations amongst others about his origins. Someone who sees the real world breaking into his experience and confusing in unmanageable ways. When you trigger a meme in other people's conversations by your presence and you don't understand that meme to be related to your presence until you can finally unpack it. The cuckoo's egg, the cuckoo's nest as a metaphor for the adoptee experience. That's the key to all of this. Like the Truman Show does tap into this countless emotional realities that adoptees might themselves confront at any point in their internal psychic map, the psychic landscape. As a visual expression of seeking truth within oneself, despite the consequences, it is a profound story. And like the Ten Commandments, the 1956 one, it's the story of a world-breaking adoptee, because Truman's world is a commercial production, one that has financed the lives of countless people. He, of course, experiences none of the comforts of his labor, except for the modest home and car he's furnished with, and are, are sort of an array of product placements that make their way into his life. We know that the moment he claims his own knowledge of his position, one real person within a world of actors, as he acknowledges his decision to become an explorer through a moment where he speaks directly to the audience behind the camera, behind the mirror in his bathroom, he's drawing a spacesuit around his face, and then he plots his escape, sort of erasing, the, erasing all of the fears of the production crew through this uh, deliberate performance of his own false self. He's he knows he's an adoptee at that point in some sense, or he certainly knows that, that he is not in a world that is normal. So when his disappearance is discovered um, and the truth of the soundstage becomes revealed, the townsfolk form the sort of search parties. The moon itself turns into like a spotlight. The sun is turned on hours too early. And so Truman confronts his own traumatic fear of drowning at that point by captaining a small boat becoming captain of his ship, going into the sea, believing he can sail away. Um, and as the film resolves, it shies away from a, like a violent, dramatic confrontation that was present in the original script. And it instead provides a shot of Sylvie, Sylvia. She's the woman who broke the truth to Truman as he neared adulthood, fleeing sort of ostensibly to go meet him, leaving the soundstage. It shows audiences cheering his emancipation, freeing of the slave and then sort of realizing they're going to have to find something else to watch. And it shows Kristoff sort of grimly confronting the fact that despite the internal fantasies he nursed about at Truman's emotional allegiances, he was always sort of this distant and cruel father to someone he never understood. He says, Truman, I've watched you your whole life. I saw you take your first step, your first word, your first kiss. I know you better than you know yourself. You're not going to walk out that door. And Truman says, you never had a camera in my head. If there is a singular truth within this film that encapsulates the experience of an adoptive parent, an adoptee, sort of during that struggle of adolescent individuation, it's this moment. The interior of all adoptees is inherently an unknowable country to the adopter. Is an interior sort of filled with repressed ideas, fears, myths, shadow selves, multiple shadow selves, and superstitions that will never be completely expressed. Adoptees who are becoming aware of their identities are filled with inchoate and pre-verbal traumas that cannot be easily articulated by their very nature. So the arrogance 
of assumptions about adoptees' talents, tendencies, health concerns, mental abilities, and physical attributes are often belied later in life by the reality of genetic expression. Uh, the damage inherent in early separation from one's mother and the subtextual cues that an adoptee internalizes the means about their value within a family and social circle is all baked quite neatly in the fabric of this kind of one scene in this one perfect film from Peter Weir, right? Um, I know now I was so moved by this film and I can watch it through without feeling quite so emotionally drained by the end of it. I can even see it as others do, which is a meditation on spirituality and materialism, a commentary on the reductive presence of a panopticon. It's a campy comedy about queering normative relationships. But as a conversation starter on the perils of adoption as industry, I don't think there's any film quite as compelling. So, like I said earlier in the last episode, when I was 14, my parents moved me to Wichita, Kansas. That's where I saw The Truman Show. I didn't want to leave the azure skies and sort of high plains brilliance of Idaho's pristine air, but Jerry got a new job at the FAA. Um, at that point, he had been he had sold his previous business and had been commuting overnight to Salt Lake City to work on planes for FedEx or for um, commercial, uh, some commercial third-party vendor for FedEx. Uh, and, and to be commuting every night from Twin Falls, Idaho to Salt Lake City by aircraft is yeah, pretty grueling. So I know that that was something that he needed a job that was different. But I certainly didn't take it that way at the time. We drove across the country from that sort of mountainous terrain of Idaho and Colorado into the flat, wide fields of nothing but wheat when we hit Kansas and moved past uh, Denver. When driving past, at some points in the year, you know, sort of farmers set their fields ablaze. So we were driving through columns of smoke that fill the sky as you drive, drive across the sort of mazy labyrinth outback of Kansas. You think about <laughs> tribes following a column of smoke by day and a column of fire by night in the desert in the Torah and certainly what fills your mind as you drive across this outback and you see landscape in all directions and nothing but columns of fire and smoke. When we finally arrived in Wichita, it was nearly midnight. The sky was pitch black and a thunderstorm had been boiling around us for hours. I would learn in time that the weather was often the most dramatic aspect of living in Kansas. So it's a, a life-threatening, all-encompassing event that slowed and stalls traffic. It brings havoc, or, you know, destroys trees, floods neighborhoods, claims lives all too often. I saw that first night, sort of a long night of lightning and splattering rain as an omen at first. I now recognize that evening as a somewhat welcome diversion from the mundanity of the area. My first home in Wichita was an apartment as my parents searched for a house, so I began to attend high school at Northwest High Northwest High. It's a large sort of public city school. There's a much broader swath of culture than my parents were accustomed to in semi-rural Idaho. The, uh, the new apartment was across the street from a library. It was uh, about um, half mile away. It was a feature that made me feel really hopeful on the move, uh, as I spent most of my time digging deep into books. And a new library meant entirely new clusters of authors that I could read. Um, but the diversity of public school in suburban Idaho was different. By diversity, I don't mean ethnically diverse exactly. I mean, the, the sudden presence of black people in my life when moved to Wichita was a change for me, but something I was looking forward to deeply, um, mostly because my understanding of adoption had been framed through watching shows like Different Strokes, the 1978 television comedy, um, 
it, so I, I thought that maybe I would find a conversation somehow as a child it, 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 with people of another race. I would be able to learn difference that I don't know how to articulate it at, at the time, but it wasn't something that I felt I was fearful of, but I sensed anxiety in my parents. Um, it was, but it was really more clear that they feared religious diversity than racial diversity. Um, and the lack of overt Christian influence on the curriculum in the public schools. In larger cities, they're teaching creationism in school causes school board controversies, but in rural, explicitly Christian spaces, no one would ever question those choices. So if I had gone to public school in Idaho, they would have had a lot less anxiety, not because of the racial mi mixture, but a, the religious teaching would have been there that they didn't feel would have been present in Wichita, Kansas. <laughs> so anyway, they ended up moving to a squat little house on the edge of a barren field in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. So the field, the field across from our home was largely abandoned. And over the years, I kind of took to sprinkling seeds and fertilizer in a single strip across the field. Um, to this day, you can see my handiwork of sort of one lush expanse in that field. while the rest of the field is plowed under every year. Kansas is weird. Uh, anyway, I began school in a more rural Goddard, Kansas, uh, after we moved to that house. It was in the spring semester of my 10th grade year. Goddard High School is named after rocket scientist Robert H. Goddard, who created the liquid fuel rocket in 1926. I mean, personally, I've always been more interested in Jack Parsons when it comes to rocket scientists, but... It was also the site of one of the earlier school shootings, predating Columbine. Um, on January 21st in 1985, 14-year-old James Allen Kirby walked into Goddard Junior High School with a 357 caliber Magnum pistol and I think a 308 caliber semi-automatic rifle. He killed the principal and he wounded three others, two teachers and a student. He didn't die in a standoff, as happens more commonly today, or kill himself. Kirby survived and subsequently was released from prison when he was 21 years old in 1991, while he was still in high school in Goddard High. I never did learn the specifics of why it happened from the other students, though, but rumors floated in many directions from the students when I arrived at Goddard High in the spring of 1989. But when I was integrated in the sophomore class, everyone reeked of PTSD, and no one would approach me, this new male student who always wore a black trench coat and was glum and odd and comes from a mountain state. It took a while to piece together what had happened to those around me, but slowly I became a part of this traumatized class of high schoolers. However, I guess, you know, Puberty is tough on everyone, not just adoptees. So like many in my age group, I had bad acne. My parents took me to a dermatologist then who put me on doxycycline. Um, the doctor told Karen that I needed to stay out of the sun while on the drug, but she confusedly just wondered if she could give me a ton of vitamin D instead. So needless to say, that summer I was tasked outdoor chores and no one seemed terribly concerned about side effects, as I understood it. Doxycycline, a common acne medication at the time, has since been shown in some cases to cause depression in youth. So at 14, I began to suffer from a moderate depression, most likely a side effect of doxycycline. And Karen and Jerry responded not quite understanding the causal relationship between my medication and symptoms and took me to a new doctor who put me, for some reason, on trazodone while I continued on the doxycycline. At this point, I was 15 years old and had no say in the medications that were put in my body. And so trazodone, a soporic tranquilizer, was given to me at lunchtime every day. So in the afternoon, I slept in class, which got me kicked out of the yearbook staff, which the new teacher assigned to that class had decided I was a lost cause or a stoner because I would be out of it on the medication. So I would crawl out of my room and coming up the stairs on hands and knees into a family conversation always loaded with guilt. 
in my movements, I'm guilty, right? In making sound, I'm guilty. They study me as if seeking visible, tangible proof of guilt. I'm not certain what they're looking for, like a reddening in my complexion, perhaps, some murderous purpose in my eyes. Trazodone is a unique experience. I remember it like being drunk constantly. But this is something I encountered before I ever drank alcohol. My relationship with my surroundings, particularly after all my near-death experiences in Idaho with Jerry and the PTSD of my cohorts, made me kind of lose my grip on reality in the midst of taking this <laughs> tranquilizer. That was the point I began cutting. So cutting helped me feel present, sort of awake. Trigger warning. I'm going to be talking a little bit more about cutting. It's important and it's something I don't do now, but I have a lattice of scars. Cutting helped me feel present. Uh, it made the pain I felt internally seem visible and tangible. It provided me with a focal point for the pain that remained internal to have surface and texture. My sense of tradition withered away as I outgrew my religious upbringing. So my connections with my friends in Idaho disappeared as I was moved to Kansas, and I did not feel at home in Kansas. I felt like an imposition, like in a tumbleweed destined for the horizon, once I was finally freed from a tangle of barbed wire. More than once, I was approached by friends of the school shooter who had been caught and locked up prior to when I moved to the school, who saw in me someone similar in demeanor and affect, with a serious curiosity in the occult, in particular the Necronomicon, which I found laughable because I also had read all of the weird fiction that had generated the myth of the text. Yeah. So during my time in Goddard High School, I sought to reject all of the trappings of Christianity, which was that anger that spilled out into all of my class discussions that led to reactions and fear amongst two of my teachers and possibly drawing the attention of the administration. I had one teacher who was a wonderful advocate and very passionate ed educator who taught two sections of a high school course she developed for herself called Creative Thinking 1 and 2. Her name was Miss Chris, Darlene Chris, and she shielded me from some of the fallout that could have derailed my high school education when I was put on strong doses of trazodone every morning during my junior year. My affect and anger were complicated by the responses around me from those who were traumatized by an entirely different causal agent than I, and I was reacting to an impossible situation wherein I was entirely powerless. So the experiences I had as a child were damaging and happened at the hands of specific individuals, but the construct of abuse that I experienced came about through institutional forces and ideological pressures that we were all constrained by. I was raised in a world that no longer exists. Only the ghosts and bones of it remain. I attended 10th through 12th grade in Goddard High School, where years earlier a student had brought a gun to school, killing long ahead of the nationwide trends. So I learned of this killing from friends in the school as of being let in on a secret, uh, <laughs> something the teachers clearly wouldn't discuss. I was treated with underlying suspicion by nearly all of my teachers, except for two, uh, Jubal Tyner, I think is a professor now, and Darlene Christ, who has passed and who was a formative part of my education. But I didn't understand that underlying suspicion uh, only until much later when I really learned the details of, you know, James Allen Kirby's actions in 1985 and how the students around me had internalized the murders. I had grown up traumatized and in adolescence was developing behaviors that were the result of this trauma. But I was also embedded with a graduating class that had also been traumatized that was dealing with a collective breakdown of safety and security. So guns were ever present tool in Goddard High School social life, as was weed, speed, LSD. I remember cigarettes were still socially acceptable enough that when I first started to attend Goddard High School, there was a smoking area for the students, provided they had notes permitting them into the area on file from a parent in the school office. Before I graduated, 
that space had been abolished, but that did nothing to prevent all of us from smoking in the parking lot before school began. This is the sort of cultural context of the moment. As I was struggling with discovering who I was, it was also being articulated by teachers and the vice principal as their next possible school shooter internally. And their concerns about my anti-Christian expressions, pro-witchcraft often in high school, along with a very complicated betrayal of confidence by my friend to my adoptive parents, did lead to my lockup inside a Christian mental hospital in Plano, Texas for seven weeks. So what I recall most clearly is the attitudes toward cigarettes by those in authority. I'd been smoking since I was 14, 13, first jarum clove cigarettes, then camel filters, and much of my mood swings during this time were exacerbated by tobacco withdrawal. So being imprisoned in a mental hospital meant I was without cigarettes for weeks. And because my adoptive parents refused to acknowledge that I smoked or had smoked, they also did not allow me to have nicotine gum, which my roommate in the mental hospital was given, nor did he share, as sharing medication would have led to severe consequences within that institutional space. I also remember him playing the notes of Something I Can Never Have by Nine Inch Nails. The first time I heard anything from Nine Inch Nails was in that mental hospital on a keyboard. The music stayed with me as I was released from the hospital, and I hunted down the album the day it was released, uh, starting a, kind of a lifelong obsession with Trent Reznor's work. So music has always sustained me, even when it was being taken away from me, and in particular, industrial music that created a protective layer of noise around me, gave me a sanctuary to find my own voice, my own places from which I could create artwork, writings, or eventually my own music. But... My, my issues as an adoptee are with the adoption industry. They're also with religious indoctrination. They're with authority that comes from imposition of violence. They're with the faceless and disembodied multi-billion dollar mythologies that fuel the culture which permeates the trauma of separation behind a facade constructed out of good intentions. So, I, I mean, I see adoption as an industry that survives because it is framed as a universal good, a panacea for the unwanted and broken infants and children that are offered up to selfless adoptive parents. This is not the truth of the lived experiences that I and many, many others attest to daily online and social media, though. For adult adoptees, reclaiming the narrative of oneself is essential to remaining in the world. Many adoptees slip away through addiction, lockup, or suicide, and their narratives are never heard. And others burn brightly in the media for a moment and become overcome with that struggle in some ways, complicated by the magnitude of the betrayal they've experienced. I, I've referenced Three Identical Strangers, the CNN film from 2018, or, or at least aired on CNN and was shown in theaters. It documented the story of several adoptees who struggled with uncovering layers of their story whilst on a national stage. So there's another example of how this can burn people out. My, my adoption didn't need to have happened, but it did. But I'm here to say it isn't my adoptive parents' fault. They acted in every way from sincere belief. If I was a social experiment, it was not at their behest. I am not the Truman Show. They brought into a beautiful lie, one that they've come to understand the complexities of and have gone on to help other adoptive parents navigate their own family conflicts in more beneficial ways, and I'm proud of them for it. I was caught up in a web as much of a matrix of deceit as they had been, and many birth mothers as well. In a way, this is what this podcast, this Unrelated Thoughts is, right? It's a larger testimonial of a lifelong wound it's not just my wound. If I don't heal, I remain wounded. And healing means understanding how and why the damage occurred and forgiving them who knew not what they did. All aspects of adoption are dealing with forms of disenfranchised griefs. The birth mother experiences bereavement and must grieve. She must not appear remorseful for having been given a chance to live unconstrained by motherhood, though. The adoptee discovers grief long after the moment and must mourn, but not too openly, because, because being that disconnected from the event, grief appears as clinical depression, uh, which is a loss that no one else can see. Not necessarily something that needs to be medicated into oblivion. 
and the adopters, they all experience buyer's remorse to a greater or lesser extent. A consumption model, right? But a consumption model of disenfranchised grief, they have to mourn but cannot mourn publicly for it expresses in ways non-adoptive parents would never comprehend. Buyer's remorse because adoption is an industry. Perhaps we as a society need to explore building empathy for all who are engaged in the adoption triad. I put that word in quotes. The biological parents, the adoptee, the adoptive parents is a triad that's discussed throughout adoptee literature. But I see the adoptee as the individual who is in most need of being voiced. The infant adoptee signs no documents and agrees to nothing and is only acted upon an object, an occult object moved about through civic rituals. The adoptee is powerless and remains so throughout childhood. That buried grief that the members of the adoption triad experience is buried most deeply in the adoptee, who remains fogged over by that grief until it comes into full consciousness. And like all trauma, when buried, deep grief can manifest in disturbing ways down the road until it is confronted. All lives must be measured by a larger spectrum of possible outcomes. There are many, many different stories out there of child abuse, of how pain and discipline cross lines set by the state or the country regarding what explicitly constitutes criminal assault on a child. I'm also certain there are laws in place regarding medical neglect when a child should be taken to a hospital or see a specialist upon different forms of injury. Hmm. But my life, my young life, was speckled with incidents where I was not treated for injuries that happened in ways I felt my adoptive father did not want to explain, perhaps out of fear that I would be taken away by the state of Idaho. I don't know if this is something they fought over as a couple, and to be honest, I don't know if they ever fought. They bought a lie and didn't understand the signs. My wounds along the way were the price of admission. <laughs>